This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And then if you, you're staying in with us, let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to read this uh, passage and then pray. Prepare your hearts to hear from God's word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the livestock in the field, with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to the brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts ours. Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened 
to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you now and pray for your help. Lord, as you look to this passage, oh, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would give us Bible-saturated minds and hearts to see as you would have us see, not as the world would tell us we ought to see. Lord, reveal lies, lies that we have imbibed. Lord, we know that we live in Canaan or maybe even worse now. And we know how subtle sin is and how deceitful it is. Lord, show us our sin. And we pray that you would show us who you are, your holiness your justice, your vengeance against evil. May we look and see the cross. And Lord, may we be a people that live holy lives that those in Canaan might see and come to know the one true God. Lord, we pray for comfort and protection over those that are among us that are listening right now and even bristling at these words because it brings back difficult memories and pain. Oh, Lord, protect and comfort in a way that only you can, Jesus. We love you and ask for your grace now. Amen. Well, we know, to reading a text like that, that the Bible is not a fictional book. It is a book about real life Uh, real history, real people. And I love how honest the scriptures are. They're so honest about its own characters, about its own characters' failures. If you're wanting to just get an honest look at how to navigate life, go to the scriptures. Not only will you find a clear picture of yourself and your own sin, But you will also find real, solid hope, hope and life. Not hope in your leaders, not hope in the big names of the Bible like Abraham and Isaac or Jacob 
or David, but in Jesus Christ alone. Really from the beginning, literally as we've been studying Genesis, from the beginning, the Bible is giving us this consistent message. God making the world and everything in it. He is good and holy and beautiful. He made man and woman to enjoy him and know him in his own image, to represent him. But there was from the beginning another voice, another plan, an alternative. And instead of listening to God's voice, Adam and Eve listened to the serpent who gave them another promise and another path, but promised the same results or even better results than God had promised. And the results are absolutely catastrophic. And we know that by just looking outside our own windows at a broken and marred world. We've seen the consequences played out in the first 33 chapters of Genesis related to male and female roles, uh, marriage, pain in childbearing and childrearing, uh, parenting failure, man's failure to provide and protect, a complete disregard for human life, and especially a disregard for God himself. So separation from God has led to disaster. And I, I want to just acknowledge that I know this section of Scripture is particularly painful for many of you because it hits on your own experience. Much of that I know, many of, many of those experiences I'm unaware of. But I want you to know I've been praying for you um, as you, particularly as I've prepared for this message this week. There's also here a really sad picture of parental neglect that we see in Jacob. And so particularly dads, men, I'm praying for you as we look to this and, and see what, what, what we see happening here with Jacob and seek repentance and faith to be faithful providers and protectors over the families, over those that God has given us to lead spiritually. I'm praying for those of us who are single especially the young people among us, maybe some who are Dinah's age, maybe she's 15 or so in this text, who are bombarded with the world's definition of love and attractiveness and sexual ethics. Make no mistake, we are living in this, this Canaan, unconquered, pagan, evil, and dangerous. And such things must not be done not be done in Israel and not in the new Israel, the church. So in light of the gravity of this text and all that it conjures up in me and in you, just as we read it and reflect on it, this personal, painful evil, injustice, misplaced vengeance, deception, parental failure, false love, I just want to shape our thinking around this reminder from the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 14, where he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That means we take our pain and the injustice that we've experienced, the vengeance in our hearts, we take our own failures and our own grievous sins to the cross. And we look to Jesus for healing. We look to Jesus for his second coming. We look to Jesus for his judgment. We look to his city 
when he will wipe away every tear and make all things new. So that's the direction I hope to take us as we walk through this passage. The title of the sermon is Defilement, Deception, and Death. Defilement, Deception, and Death. I'm going to let those three words be our outline as we go through the passage. They're going to mark off three kind of larger scenes in the text. So if you're taking notes, those are the three kind of landmarks that I'll give you. Scene one is the defiling of Dinah, verses 1 to 6. Scene two, we'll see deception on all fronts, verses 7 to 24. And then finally, scene three, death, verses 25 to 31. This is a dark text, but there is hope here. And I I pray that as we linger, we would see it and be drawn all the more to Jesus Christ and the hope that he holds out for us every day, and especially on that last day. So look with me at the first scene, number one, defiling, scene one. And if you remember, we've, we've come off kind of a mountaintop scene, a mountaintop experience for Jacob and his family. In chapter 33, that long, strained relationship with his brother Esau has been reconciled. The new Jacob, re- renamed Israel, showed, if you remember, tangible evidence of repentance and desiring to make his relationship with his brother right. In chapter 33, Esau accepted him and they wept together in reconciliation. But if you remember, there were shadows in chapter 33 lurking. Jacob seemed to have lied to Esau about where he was going. I'm going to Sire right with you, but he had no intention to do that. He settled in Shechem and purchased land there, which was in Canaan, but only about 20 miles away from Bethel, where he had made a vow to one day return. But he stopped short. And he pitched his tents just outside the city of Shechem. And perhaps we would say too close to the city. And that just leads us into our passage. So beginning there at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now I want to notice a couple things about this verse. First, notice the way Moses emphasizes Dinah's relationship to Jacob as his daughter through Leah. You'll notice that word, actually, daughter, uh, show up a lot in this text, just as a reminder, emphasizing her relationship to Jacob. This is his daughter. We also remember that Leah was the unloved wife of Jacob. He loved Rachel. And Leah is, is constantly vying for Jacob's affection and doesn't get it. And so we, we've talked about how this pain in childbearing, this brokenness just comes forward as a result of the fall in this family. And we're going to see that trickle down even to Jacob's love and concern for Dinah, his daughter. He just seems basically unconcerned about her throughout the passage. Right after we're reminded of that, we see that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. And listen, I want you to know, when I read this passage, I get, I get, I feel my blood pressure go up, and I'm like, this is, this should not be, but we have to understand what's happening here in verse one as well. This is not a good thing for Dinah to do. For, for the women of the land, that, those are the Canaanite women of the land. The men of the land are not far away. 
Do you remember how important it was for Abraham that Isaac not marry a Canaanite woman, but a woman from his own family? And do you remember Rebecca telling Isaac that she loathed her life because of the foreign women that Esau had married? That was actually a, a, a Hivite woman, like Shechem. So this is a sign that Dinah's wandering away from the safety and security of the camp of Israel, and it, it was not good. Now, we were right to criticize Abraham and Isaac for, remember, lying to all the foreign kings, saying, oh, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. We were right to criticize them about that. But I want you to know this is what they were afraid of. This is what they were trying to keep their wives from, what Shechem does to Dinah. One commentator mentions that the girls of marriable age would not normally leave a rural encampment to go unchaperoned into an alien city. So this is strange, this is unwise, this is not good. Now, why is she doing it? Of course, we don't know the details. But should she have known better? Yes. But the blame for that, I want to I put not only on her own shoulders, but on Jacob's shoulders. If he's going to encamp this close to a pagan city, should he not sit his family down and explain to them the boundaries that have to be followed in this family, especially his young daughter? He should have warned her and made sure she was protected. Given, given the way the rest of the passage goes, I don't see Jacob doing that. So parents, especially fathers, I understand that there are two prongs at work in our parenting, in the way that we want to raise our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The first prong is that we teach and model the gospel. A biblical, we want to teach the Bible. We want to teach the Bible's ethics. We want to provide a Christian worldview. We want to discipline with the purpose of redemption, pointing to Christ. That's one prong. The other prong is listening, is obeying by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the child's responsibility. We can't control that prong. Our calling, calling is to be faithful to prong one and pray that God would do his work. And so this is a helpful time for us to ask, are we pitching our tents too closely to the city of man and our own families? Are we allowing our children to wander off into Canaan, unprotected, unchaperoned. And as you know, it doesn't have to mean walking off physically to be with people they shouldn't be or places they shouldn't be. We now have this little portal that we can hold in our hands that we can jump right in and go through to anywhere we want to be. Fathers, are you particularly warning and teaching and setting boundaries in your family, and, and disciplining when those boundaries are crossed? Are we setting boundaries with dress, with the way we encourage our sons and daughters to dress in modesty, in ways that would honor the Lord, that would serve their own brothers and sisters in the church and elsewhere? Friends, we cannot check out on this. I have heard parents say something like, that's just a battle I'm not going to fight. I've got all these other battles. That's one I'm just not going to fight. You can't say that, parents. We have to fight that battle. Even when you go to the store and there's nothing, there's nothing modest on the shelves to buy, 
Remember, we're shopping in Canaan. Go to Amazon. Young people, are you listening? Are you listening to your parents' instruction? You can't see this right now, but you are trafficking between two cities that worship different gods and have different standards and moralities. God has placed you in a family, in a church family, for your good, for your protection, to learn and to grow, to have a safe place so that even when you fall down, you can get back up again. Don't neglect that. Beloved, we want our church to be that. We want our church to be a safe place for everyone. I'm thankful for the measures that we're, we're seeking to take. I'm thankful for Jill, Jill Rowan. I'm sitting in my office this morning hearing her, again, work through a training for all those who are working in our children's ministry. I'm so thankful for the steps that we're taking in that regard. I'm thankful for our deacons. I was sitting in a deacons meeting on Sunday night and hearing their concern and response that this would be a safe place for you and your families and your children to come and worship. They're very concerned about that. But this should be a concern for all of us, all of us in the room. And I especially want to charge the men who are, by God's grace, clearly given this role of protecting and providing and leading chasing off the wolves and protecting the sheep. Brothers, this is our calling, and we must take it very seriously. Now, that said, Jacob's neglect, Dinah's wandering off in this, one, this unwise decision to go out to the women of the city does not in any way excuse what happens here. And in, in no way am I saying this is all of, all of her fault. There's, there's absolutely no blame shifting, no justification for what we see in verse 2. Look there with me. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. There's a fourfold description there that just brings gravity to what's happened. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. I think we're reminded of the verbs that Moses uses in Genesis 3. The woman saw the fruit. She took the fruit and ate and gave with her, to her husband who was with her. In Genesis 6, when the sons of God took the daughters of man and went into them, the evil that leads up to the flood in Genesis 6, where the Lord is grieved to his heart that the wickedness of man is so great that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That evil is on display now. Shechem is a prince of the land, a ruler, a favored son in his family. And he takes and rapes young Dinah. When he speaks about her, Later in verse 4, he uses a Hebrew word that basically means child. She is violated. He takes from her and heaps shame on her. She's humiliated. This is not consensual. This is brutal evil. And we feel it. Deep down in our bones, we feel it. I know personally so many of you feel it. 
I can't say that I understand what you've been through if you've been through something like this other than having to to counsel and talk and try to encourage you. I hope our church can be a place of refuge for you to grow in restoration and renewal because we're gonna point you to our great and sympathetic high priest from Hebrews 4. for, For the author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus experienced the greatest evil in the universe. He can sympathize with the evil that you've endured and experienced. You can come to him. It's okay to say that you need his help, that you need his mercy to bring that need to him. The author of Hebrews says you will find grace and receive mercy. Draw near to the throne of grace. He is with you and he will be there with you tenderly to care for you and restore you. Things move faster a little bit now. Let's look at verse three. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. When I first started reading this passage, I'm making loud remarks in my office. It just, it just make, makes me more angry. Clearly, he doesn't understand what love is, but he's expressing what he knows. If you compare this to another place in the Bible where this happens with David's son Amnon and, and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, there Amnon violates her and then despises her and kicks her out of his presence. So I guess you could say it's not that bad, but that's a pretty low bar. I think what we're seeing here with Shechem's soul longing for being drawn to Dinah is the reality of Genesis 2.24. It's at work. God has designed sex for marriage in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And in that context, there is a uniting that happens to become one flesh. And that union is glorious. But when you deviate from that design, we ought not be surprised when devastation results. This is Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't you remember that your your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He goes on to say, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So friend, when this one flesh union happens outside of marriage, well, now what? Nothing, if you ask the world. This is normal. This is not even news. This is test driving relationships. This is expected. But when you live that way and unite your soul, one flesh to one person, another person, another person, another person, it is the equivalent every time that union breaks of a divorce, of tearing, a ripping, a brokenness. Friend, trust God's ways. God's ways are much better than the world's ways. 
There's healing. There's forgiveness for you. If you have this brokenness, sexual shame in your own past, Jesus will bear away your shame. Come to him. Reject the world's lie. This is not love. Shechem is infatuated. He desires her physically. And yes, it's good now that he wants to take care of her and marry her. But this is not the godly biblical way that love works. In Canaan, this is how it's done. In Houston, this is how it's done. In the U.S., this is how it's done. In Hollywood, this is how it's done. But the obvious question is, where's Jacob? Where's Jacob in all this? We see in verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now as we've studied the life of Jacob, does this seem like Jacob? The man who's always taking initiative? The man who's always ready, um, fire, aim? The man when God shows up, he attacks him and wrestles him? That doesn't sound like Jacob. But here, he does nothing. He says nothing. I think he's being passive and weak. And it's, 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 it's really just striking. And we'll see the contrast when his sons come home. This section closes with Hamor, Shechem's father, going out. That's the same phrase that was used of Dinah in verse 1, going out to meet Jacob in verse 6. And we would expect when that meeting happens, it's going to be apologies, it's going to be an attitude of repentance. You tell me what I need to do to make this right, and I'll make it right. Spoiler alert, that's not the attitude that Hamor has. So scene two, beginning in verse seven, we'll just call deception. In these verses, we'll see what we'd expect to see, I think, from Jacob. Uh, Look at verse seven. The sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard of it, And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. You get the impression that David did not even send word to them. They just heard about it and came home. And when they come home, they're angry. Often we look for examples, think about examples of righteous anger in the Bible. I think this is an example of righteous indignation. They are outraged by what has happened. And they should be. Jacob should be. You and I should be. And we get the editorial comment from Moses that reinforces this. For such a thing must not be done. And yet it was done. In Israel, kind of this picture that Israel is already forming maybe into this nation, this this, this tribe. Well, this is what Hamor has to say. The father of the perpetrator, verse 8 But Hamor spoke, now look at this, look along with me, verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and make our daughters for yourselves. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And then Shechem goes on uh, to speak even after that. I just want to observe two things about what's happening here. The first is what's not there. What's not here in Hamor's words? Well, there's no apology. There's no repentance. There is no acknowledgement of what's happened. We're going to learn in a few verses, or we already saw 
not only has Shechem raped Dinah, he's also taken her, abducted her. She's at home in his house, perhaps even against his will. All Hamor wants to talk about is potential marriage and union between the two peoples. Friends, this is what happens when God is completely removed from a culture, from an environment. Notice God's name is mentioned nowhere in this chapter. No repentance, no prayer, no remembering the promises of God. The only religious thing that's mentioned is circumcision, and we're going to see that's going to be abused and mocked. That's the, the other thing I want, to, I want to observe here, no apology, is that what he promises to Jacob and his sons. He says, dwell with us in the land that is more open to you, is now open to you. Make marriages with us. Take our daughters and we'll take yours. In other words, your seed will continue here. And Shechem, when he speaks up in the next few verses, says, you name the price, the bridal price for Dinah. And then he offers to bless the family out of the gift as well. Land, seed, and blessing. Those are the, the contours of the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of God now coming from this false voice. You can live like you want to live and still have everything God promised you and even more. This is a satanic offer to go away from God's ways and promises for everything that you want. Friends, Satan's promises are no different today. Do what feels right. Do what you want. You can have it better. You can have it both ways. You define your own ethics. You define what love means. You define what justice means. What a deception. But that's a theme that goes throughout this passage. Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So we don't have to wonder if what happens later in this chapter is approved by God or the author. We know it's not. This is a deceitful action, a deceitful plan. It's wrong. It's not good. And it's rooted in a desire for vengeance. The brothers are likely even more angry now after talking to Hamor and Shechem. You would show your face before us and not even an apology, not even an acknowledgement. So this plot forms in their minds. And I'll just be really honest, I sympathize with them. I can see myself in their shoes, absolutely. But we need to be corrected. Our emotions need to be shaped and corrected by the word of God so that we are not the same as the people of the world. There are ways, even in, in Scripture, clearly laid out to deal with things like this. You can find them in Deuteronomy 22. I understand that's not accessible here in Genesis, but later we'll see these things laid out. Perhaps something like this could have happened. Uh, first is a scenario, when, when, this, when this happens, a very similar scenario, Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, where a man takes a woman and lies with her like Shechem does, he should be put to death. He should be put to death. If you're a young man in the room, I would just encourage you to remember that. The next time you're tempted to put your hands on a young lady who is not your wife. In God's heart, this is God's word, this person should be put to death for their sin. That's one option. Another option in Deuteronomy 22, if there's maybe a more amical situation, is for the bridal price to be paid to the father. 
he would, that this man would marry the woman and he would promise to never divorce her. Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. So there are ways, even in God's word, that you could see, um, you could seek reconciliation here in a measured right way. None of this is even discussed or even either considered. The plot is for the men to be circumcised. Now, technically, that would have to happen if they were going to intermarry. According to Genesis 17, this is part of the, the mark of being a part of the covenant people of God after you have surrendered your life to Yahweh and loved him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Physical circumcision is a sign of the covenant, but it by itself is meaningless. And we see that here. I don't think the brothers ever intend to intermarry here at all. Later, Moses is going to explicitly forbid that. Deuteronomy 7, 3, they only want revenge. They're using circumcision as a weapon. It would be like trying to drown people in baptism. Surprisingly, we read in verses 18 and 24, I'm not going to read those verses again, that Hamor and Shechem happily agree to this arrangement. We'll do it. But like a true politician, Hamor stands before his people and he emphasizes the benefits of the policy, the idea, without the true motive being revealed. Nothing about rape, nothing about his son's love for Dinah, only what the people will get out of the deal. And he just kind of throws in, by the way, we just need to be circumcised. Well, what do you get out of the deal? I mean, it's really clear in verse 23. Look there. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. This is a takeover. It's deception on both sides. None of this was mentioned in the treaty with Jacob or his sons. Did you notice that it wasn't Jacob, but his sons that were doing all the negotiating? Jacob, again, is just sitting on his hands. He's, he's passively in the background. That's not going to turn out well. He's not leading his sons. They're, they're going to lead, and it's not going to turn out well. That's our third scene, death. Number three, death. So think about what's happened. All the men, they've been circumcised. They go off to do it. Verse uh, 24, they leave the city, they go off to do it. And now they're recovering. And I think we can assume they're incapacitated. They're not embracing, you know, God's covenant promises. They have takeover in mind. They have the, the daughters of Israel in mind. And Jacob's sons have revenge in mind. Isn't it ironic, this cruel twist, that this part of the body that was used in Shechem's sin, that's going to be the, the part that's going to be most punished. And really, they're just getting started. So look at verse 25. Again, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So in the normal recovery time, the third day was perhaps the, the peak of the pain as healing is taking over and the men are completely vulnerable. 
And that explains, I think, how two men could kill all the males in the city. Now, why Simeon and Levi? Because they are Dinah's full brothers and perhaps the most offended by the sin. And so, like Shechem, they took Dinah. They took their swords and killed all the males, all the men, not just the one who sinned, but his father and every other male in the city. And then the rest of Jacob's sons come like pirates and plunder the entire city. This is vigilante justice. Often people will, people will criticize the Bible and the Bible's teaching, particularly in the Old Testament, about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Friends, that is merciful and measured compared to what we see here. What gets cooked up in a human heart that is inflamed with vengeful anger. So they go completely overboard. They match injustice with more injustice. They return evil for evil. And so, beloved, this is not right. This is not the way. Their moral indignation was right. Their outrage and anger was right, godly even, but their actions were not. So we have to ask, well, what do we do with our moral indignation and our outrage? When we've been violated or someone we love has been taken advantage of? And there's two ways to answer that. Uh, One is the response and one is the root of the response. The response and the root of the response. So first, the response. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Romans twelve seventeen, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's the response. And the question is, Lord, how do we get there? from where I am right now, how I'm feeling right now. How do I get there? If I just leave it there, I feel like that's telling you, you need to get in a car and drive to El Paso, but you can just get no gas. But I expect you to be there. What's gonna fuel our journey to these realities? First of all, it doesn't mean that there's no action taken against evil. Right after Romans 12 is Romans 13, okay? Where we read of the role of the governing authorities that God has placed over us to deal with evil in this life. And so I just wanna read Romans 13, 14 in the context of what we've just seen in Genesis 34. Speaking of the governing authorities, Paul writes, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So this is why we want to pray for our governing authorities, isn't it? We want to pray for our leaders to fulfill this purpose, God-given purpose for governing authorities. At our church, we're going to encourage the involvement of authorities and and the prosecution of those that do what Shechem did to Dinah. 
That's not ungodly. That's not being unlike what Jesus would call us to do. This is the the role that God has given for this. This is their God-given purpose. But we understand and know there is more to the conversation of justice than just what happens in this life. Sometimes that justice, that Romans 13, 4 justice fails. Sometimes people get away with it and are not caught or no one knows. Sometimes there's no repentance ever. So what happens then? Another verse in Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that's not a reference to governing authorities. That's a reference to God himself. Now, I want to just acknowledge that is a challenging, Holy Spirit-enabled work that has to take place in our hearts. It has to take place in our minds, whether through counseling, through letting the word of God wash over our hearts and minds over time, by God's grace, sitting under faithful preaching of the gospel, constant and enduring prayer, to be able to look not just to earthly justice, but to cosmic justice to do the mental, spiritual transaction that can, only, that can only help us to lay down our desire for vengeance and trust God's justice. Friends, even God's vengeance is reassuring that God is a vengeful God. Not like us, not like Levi and Simeon. Perfectly vengeful, perfectly, fiercely, eternally committed to justice. He's more offended than you are at your sin, at the evil that you've endured. I don't know if you've read the book of Revelation lately. I've been reading it. And I I just think it's one of the most piercing, if not the most piercing books in the New Testament. It's as if you want to hear Jesus speak to you, read Revelation. He is speaking to churches, to the churches. And This is what he says in Revelation 21. Speaking of the last days, the last day, Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus says that is coming. That's justice. Jesus says he is coming. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And beloved, when he comes, there's no getting away with it. There's no hiding. There's no words. There's no judicial technicalities. It will be like this. In Revelation 19, verse 11, John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen on white and pure will follow him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Beloved, you can rest in the vengeance and justice of Almighty God. You can sleep knowing that no sin will go unpunished. The New Testament describes hell as eternal, conscious torment. Meditate on those words. Put them together. Eternal, conscious torment. This is what it means to say that God is holy and just. Don't repay evil for evil. And trust yourself to God's justice. And then we come to a place where we can find freedom from bitterness and vengeful hearts and even find forgiveness and even love for our enemies. So imagine the blood-soaked brothers coming back to Jacob, standing before them, kind of proud of, their, of themselves after this massacre is complete. What does he say about all this? You see it in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. You notice my emphasis there. He's most concerned about himself. You brought trouble on me. You made us think of me. What if they attack me? Nothing here about Dinah or what the, the sons have done. Naturally, they respond. But they said, should, we, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And of course, the answer is no. That's a great example of what has happened. Shechem treated her that way. He seized her, laid with her, and then offered to pay for her. Jacob comes off much more like her pimp than her father in this whole thing. But the answer to this sin is not genocide and it's not passivity, but turning to God's justice and seeking God's grace. That's the only hope for people like Jacob, like you and me and Shechem. Hey, look at the way verse 35 begins. But God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God is still pursuing Jacob. His grace is still active despite his sin. Beloved, that is good news. That God would even say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob. That brings gospel hope to my own heart. Because there's another way that God's wrath can be extinguished against sin. Not judgment on us, but on Christ. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered, he suffered once for sins. 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, not for judgment, but peace, adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus suffered to pay the price for all of his people. He took the wrath for the sins of all that would turn and repent and put their trust in him. That offer is for you. We're going to see in this world defilement, deception, even death. But Jesus comes to take away our shame, our humiliation, to absorb the wrath of God for our evil, to face it and defeat it, to show us what true love is. Even while we were yet sinners, imperfect parents, rebellious children, guilty sinners, Christ died for us. He takes us from defiled to clean, from deceived to those who love the truth, from death to life. If you're hurting, if you're in pain, if you're shamed, you're not alone. You're not unloved. You have a heavenly father that loves you, a savior that died for you. And who will bring healing to you? You're not too dirty for him. He came to make you clean. There's hope in him. Uh, Derek Kidner says, everyone in this narrative finds themselves equidistant from true justice. Uh, No one does well here in this story. No one makes out well. No one looks good, not even one. But in Christ, there is hope. There's hope for you and there's hope for me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us and pray that you would minister to us healing and grace that we might repent and believe and we might follow you that we might step into what you've called us to and we pray that this would be a safe place that you would watch over us protect us And give us, Lord, hearts to be protectors, to be good shepherds of our families and of the congregation, to be good moms and dads who trust you, who are just faithful in teaching the gospel, modeling the gospel, praying that our children would receive the gospel. Lord, we pray that we'd be distinct from this world, that the world might see and know true life in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.